how can I balance what I do right now with a child? Crazy in hindsight to think that you'd go through that procedure, still be bleeding, still be in pain and turn up to work the next day. I just didn't want it to impact my job and so I just didn't tell them until I felt like I absolutely had to and I absolutely had to at that point. It's much easier working full time than being a mother. We're still just under the thumb of the patriarch, this patriarchal motherhood and it's, and it's challenging and it's challenging in ways that we sort of, you know, we carry a lot of guilt, we blame ourselves for things when actually, you know, it's not our, it's not within us. I'm their mother but I'm also a person who needs time and space. Gabrielle Nancaro went back to work just the day after a DNC procedure following her pregnancy loss. It's a far cry from the way in which she cares for birthing people as a doula today. But back then, she was flying high in the corporate world as the editorial director at Victoria's Secret in New York. Her life was fast-paced. Her work was exciting and her career thriving. Soon after that loss, another pregnancy would eventuate, leading to the birth of her first child, and with it, like so many mothers before her, a rebirth of Gabrielle. The career goalposts started shifting in that postpartum period. And here, we talk returning to work full-time at just four months postpartum, leaving her job and her life in New York, and the new career she's created for herself at home in Melbourne as a doula, a small business owner, and a published author. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, and here, is the warm-hearted and whip-smart Gabrielle Nancaro. Gabrielle, thanks so much for joining us today. Can you start by introducing yourself and your family? Yes, yeah, sure. Thank you, Lucinda. It's really good to be here. Um, so I'm Gabrielle Nancaro. Um, I'm a mother of three children. I have Camille, who's eight, Audrey's five, and Freddie has just turned two. Um, and I live with uh, my husband James and our kids in Melbourne in the inner west and I um, am a birth doula and I run a space called Gather which is a gathering space for women and families and I also have just finished writing my second book so I'm a published author. I wrote The Birth Space first in 2020 and yeah just finished my second book so I, I wear lots of hats. You've done a lot in a short period of time. I read your first book and absolutely loved it. But before oh. we get into all of that, let's go back to New York. So you'd lived there for a period in your early to mid-20s. Yeah. You then come back to Australia, you get married, you go back to New York and you get a pretty amazing dream job not too far after that. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I did live in New York when I was about 22 for a period of time. I did an internship and um, I left and I felt like I hadn't done New York enough. I just really wanted to go back. And so after my husband and I got married, he was able to get a transfer through his work to New York, which made the visa thing really easy for me. It meant that I had um, I actually had a grace period of like three months while that visa sorted itself out. So I was sort of, you know, happily work free for a few months while I just cruised around the city, looked for an apartment and did all that fun stuff. What and an experience. Then, um, yeah, it was so good. It was nice not having to work because I'm a bit of a, I sort of, I, I work a lot. That's what I do. You know, I'm always mm. looking for the next opportunity. And so having like a forced period of time off was really nice. It meant that I I couldn't get a job. I, I could sort of put the feelers out, but um, not actually start working. So I registered with an agency and they had this job going at Victoria's Secret, which was um, a copywriter role. Um, I interviewed, met the team and got the job. And that was about like almost to the day that my visa was approved. So the timing was perfect. They were really happy that 
I had a visa. They didn't have to sponsor me or do anything like that. And so mm. I started my job there as a copywriter um, for, yeah, for the Victoria's Secret Pink team, which at the time was quite a small team. So there was there was me. I was really the only writer for the team. There was a small leadership team. There was a marketing team. And then we had design and sales. And um, it was pretty small, actually. It was nice. It was a really nice, intimate environment. Really enjoyed it. And then eventually you work your way up to the position of editorial director. Can you tell us a little bit about that progression? Sure. So I was in the role for when when I left New York, I'd been there five and a half years in the same job. So I started as the copywriter and I and I quickly sort of made my mark in terms of prior to me being there, all of the copy was written by the marketing team. So it was very marketing speak and it wasn't, it was very sales oriented, very pushy. There was no sort of voice of the brand. It just felt like um, it was just constant sales, which is fine, but I don't think it really develops a sort of a relationship with your customer. So I was really put in that role to develop a voice for the brand and to really connect with the customer. And it was a really exciting job because it meant that not only was I writing and doing what I love doing, but I was able to really um, define who the customer was, speak directly to them, have a personality for the brand and be able to infiltrate every single part of the brand. So I was writing for online social media, um, their catalogs. I was doing all the video editing production with them. I was going on lots of shoots. So I really was able to sort of diversify the role and make sure that that voice was touching all aspects of that brand. And in that time, in the five and a half years I was there, I really developed a very strong personality, a very strong voice and a massive following. So, you know, it was time, it was a time, I can't even remember what year it was. I think I started in 2011, 2010, maybe. So yeah, social media was just kind of kicking off and it was just a really mm -hmm. good, exciting time to be at the brand. And as I got busier, and as my sort of, you know, role as an editorial director sort of grew in the company and people got to know me and what I was doing and how impactful it was, I was able to hire under me. So I left with quite a robust team um, and we were able to sort of work quite independently of the marketing team, which was great and be more of part of the creative team, which I loved. So yeah, it was just a really exciting, like the role was quite intense. It was very, very long hours, lots of travel. Um, I really felt wed to the job when I was there, but my husband was also working crazy hours too. So we just were there, we're having fun, we're working a lot and just enjoying ourselves. Like it was a perfect, the kind of the perfect time to be in New York pre-children with jobs that were exciting. So you've got that career in New York that a lot of people dream of. It's almost a movie-like scenario. You're flying really high in your career. How does the talk of having a family come into that and how do you feel emotionally about the idea of bringing a baby into this career and this lifestyle you've created? Yeah, it it's a funny story. I I always had this, I think a lot of us sort of have this idea, especially if we're with someone that maybe 30 is the time to start yeah. thinking about it. Like you have your 20s and then by 30, you're like, okay, is this the next progression <laughs> of my life and career? So when I turned 30, I started saying, I'm ready for a baby. Let's have a baby. Let's do this. And I'd only been in the job about two and a half years at that point. And James was like, no, we're having too much fun. This is just such an ideal life. Like, we've got time, let's wait a little bit. And I sort of just kept pushing the idea for almost a year, I think. And then, um, yeah, it was after I turned 31 that I sort of said, you know, this is, this is it. We need to do this. I really want, I really want to have children. And he was still not that excited about the idea. And I remember we were on a trip, um, down the Californian coast, um, at Thanksgiving one year or that year. And, um, he just out of the blue one day was like, okay, I'm ready. Do it. <laughs> so pragmatic. 
Yeah. The minute he said that, I took a step back. Like I was quite surprised by my reaction Mm. to what he said. And I said, oh, okay, I'm not ready. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not ready now. Like the minute he was on board, I thought, wow, that's, that's real now. And I'm Mm, not quite ready for that. I need more time. What does that mean for my career? What does that mean for the life that we've built? Um, and what does it mean for me? Like I, you know, I'd seen women's sort of, you know, I had this idea in my head of like this effortless, like having it all woman who was able mm. to do things. And I thought there's absolutely no way I'm going to be able to do that. How can I balance what I do right now with a child? Like I just am not ready yet. So I sat with that for a few months um, and was like, just, I need to think about this. Like I'm not, I'm actually not ready for this. And it was um, probably not until sort of early the next year that I was like, okay, yeah, I think maybe, maybe I'm not quite ready. I don't know if you're ever going to be ready for that, but, but let's, let's try this. Let's see what happens. Who knows how long this is going to take. And what did happen then? You've openly talked before about your pregnancy loss, which actually coincided with your work a lot because of what you Mm. were going through and what Mm. you felt comfortable sharing and not sharing. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about that, that time in your life? Yeah, so I fell pregnant easily um, and I found out in May that year that we were pregnant and it was a really beautiful moment where I naively thought, well, this is it, this is our baby, Um, this is exciting, this is going to happen and we just enjoyed the next few weeks together with this incredible kind of secret. We didn't really tell anyone as you sort of don't. I've learned now that it's a good idea to talk about it if you can but Um, We did tell our families, which was really nice, but um, yeah, I lost that baby at about nine weeks. Um, I hadn't told work I was pregnant and I didn't even tell my boss who I was really close to personally and professionally. She's one of my closest friends still today. Um, I didn't tell her what I was going through. I I said to her, you know, I had lost the baby and I'd been, they'd recommended I have a D and C. So this Mm -hmm. is like the Wednesday at work where I sort of you know, I had the knowledge for a few days and then I told her that I had to go in for a small procedure the next day and I'd be back at work on Friday. And she said, is everything okay? And I said, yep, everything's fine. Didn't mention anything that was going on. I went and had the DNC on the Thursday and I was back at work on the Friday um, and just did not give myself any space to emotionally process it. I didn't let anyone know about it. I guess there's sort of a fear in your mind if you start talking about wanting to have a baby at work that maybe that's going to, you know, in their heads sort of, you know, set you back a little bit they're not going to give you the opportunities anymore or you're on the baby track so you know that's what I was afraid of even though I don't think it would have happened in reality but I just wanted to keep it to myself which it's not a good idea it's really not a good idea because I needed the time off emotionally and physically but I didn't let myself have it and so I didn't really grieve any of it or process any of it honestly for a couple of years like I got pregnant with our daughter Cammy a couple of months later and, you know, went straight into that pregnancy and that all turned out beautifully. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't really think about the loss for a long time. And it really did impact me a lot. If I, you know, I'm, I find it hard um, now even thinking about that, that loss and that baby that, you know, at the time I just didn't let myself grieve. And pregnancy and birth brings up so much emotion anyway. So then to have buried that emotion before it even came out must have been huge. Do you think that was also a cultural thing in working in New York that you sort of had to get back to work and nothing really should stop you from working? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was definitely that playing into it, I think, like not 
you know, you don't get much time off over there. Um, and I think, yeah, it's a, it is definitely a cultural thing just to get back into it. And the, we'll talk about maternity leave, but yeah, people just don't take the time off that they need. So I didn't, I didn't think that I should ask for it. And I didn't think that I needed it, even though it's crazy in hindsight to think that you'd go through that mm-hmm. procedure, still be bleeding, still be in pain and turn up to work the next day. Like it's, yeah. I hadn't even thought of the pain aspect either. That must have been such a huge time for you. Then you do get pregnant again and it, as you say, ends up beautifully. Can you tell us a little bit about processing pregnancy from a career point of view, letting your boss know and how that all played out? Yeah, I, um, I found out I was pregnant in September and we were planning on coming home to Australia for Christmas that year anyway. And again, in my mind, I didn't want anyone at work to know that I was pregnant. I didn't want to lose the opportunities that were coming at me like thick and fast I was progressing through that career so quickly and and it was really um I loved it I loved my job and I didn't want anything to change so I didn't tell my boss until I got home I got back to New York from our trip home in like mid-January I was due in May so what was that I was like 20 nearly 25 weeks or something like I can't remember but I remember her saying to me and it was my first baby so I wasn't sort of showing a lot and it was winter so I was quite covered up but I remember her saying, oh, that's exciting. That's amazing. When are you due? And I was like, oh, May. And it was January. And she's like, what? <laughs> How pregnant are you? <laughs> and I yeah, think, relatively pregnant. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, over halfway. Um, but, yeah, I think the same thing. I was just nervous. I was so nervous mm. about telling her, which is crazy because she's she was always going to be so happy for me and always so supportive of me. But I was just in that, yeah, in that culture, in that industry, you do get, you do worry that you're just going to get forgotten about basically or put to the side and they'll move on and they'll move fast. So I just didn't want it to impact my job. And so I just didn't tell them until I felt like I absolutely had to. And I absolutely had to at that point. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I told every, all my colleagues and they're like, Are you, you don't even look that pregnant. And then I sort of showed them, they're like, oh yeah, wow. Yeah. You've got a baby in there. So <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And I guess, as you say, in a place like New York, the pressure would be really intense. So I can understand why you left it till that point. And then you did negotiate longer maternity leave that is normal in that culture. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about what is normal and what you got? Yep. Normal or average. Well, for America in general, it's like a crazy six weeks or something like that. I think at my work, it was around eight weeks was pretty standard. Um, And I I just thought there's no way I'm taking more than that. I ended up taking 16 weeks off, which to them was a lot and to me was only the bare minimum of what I thought that I could ask for and also be able to have my job back at the end of it. And I did want to have my job back. I did want to um, go back to work and leave on my own terms, not leave because I'd had a baby. So I, um, yeah, negotiated 16 weeks. I probably in hindsight maybe could have asked for a little bit more because my boss is European and she totally got it. She's like, yep, I will fight for you. And she actually literally had to fight for me. They, I don't think they were that happy about me taking that much time off in, you know, leadership and people higher up. But she said, you know, we'll be fine. She'll be fine. She'll, you know, manage it and um, we'll work through it and it'll be okay. And at that time I had a really good team underneath me who really knew the work and um, I'd set it up pretty well to be able to take that time off. But um, it was controversial. And I remember my colleagues just sort of not not thinking that I thought that, you know, it'd be a good thing that I was paving the way for women to ask for more Mm. time because I think the biggest fear was that if anyone asked for more than eight weeks that they wouldn't have a job at the end of it. And so I said, look, here I'm taking four months and um, my job's going to be there so you can do it too. And the reaction was more like, 
no, that's not okay that you're doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. There was a lot of resentment in most of my colleagues at the time thinking, you know, I thought they'd be celebrating it. And they were just like, first of all, you're crazy for taking that time off and you shouldn't be taking that time off. Why can you ask for that? And we can't. And I said, well, you can. And I think that just helped you. Yeah. The biggest difference is that I'm Australian and that's not my culture. Like we come from a a country where it's normal to take a year off or six months to a year off and it's not even, no one bats an eyelid about that. But in the US, it's that's unheard of. So I had that background where I said, well, if you don't want me to come back after four months, that's okay, but I'm taking at least that much time off. And and it ended up working out fine. I took the time off and I got back. The, the hardest thing was that I wasn't ready to go back at four months. You're still... Mm-hmm there's still so much going on at four months. I'm still feeding all night long and I'm pumping milk all day long. And it's a really hard transition back to work full time. I remember asking if I could work from home one day a week and that was not okay. No, you must be in the Mm. office five days. And, you know, we had a nanny and my mum also looking after her and I would rush home, rush out the door from work at like 5.30 and just everyone watching me saying, what are you like? Like 5.30 is too early. We used to work till 9, 9.30. So at 5.30 leaving was just, you know, I, I, someone, a couple of people actually said to me, you can't, you've got to choose a few nights a week where you're going to stay late. And I was like, but I've got this infinite home and I'm, you know, I've got to go home and feed her to sleep and it's really tricky. So yeah, even going back to work and, and doing everything I said I would do, I still got a lot from people just sort of at the time saying, you're not working enough, you're not working hard enough. And so if I take you back to that first week in the lead up to return to work and also that first day, can you tell me a bit about how you were feeling emotionally? Mm, I was feeling heartbroken um, to be leaving my daughter when she was so young. We'd found a nanny who just my gut feel was that she was the right person. She came from another Australian family who raved about her and um, it's a huge thing to leave your child with a stranger but it felt right to me and she ended up being incredible. Um, but it was so, it was heartbreaking, but also motherhood is so hard and so many, there's so many challenges. And I think in the early days, early months, you're really lost and you're looking for answers and you're so um, just untethered, I think. Like you just can't, you just don't know where you are. Like your identity is shifting massively your hormones are all over the place, like your relationship is changing, everything is changing. And so for me, in the back of my mind, I was sort of like, well, work might be a bit of a relief, honestly, as much as I don't Mm. want to leave my child at home. I'm stepping back into a really familiar space where I know the job, where I know the people, where I'm like rewarded and paid for the work that I'm doing. And this is and sort of more obvious outcomes. If you put the work in, you get the reward out, whereas motherhood is a totally ever-changing thing yeah and with motherhood you can't you can't work harder and get results it's not how it works (laughs) you just you just have to be in it and go with it and know that your child just needs you know love and everything will be okay but you still you know especially when you go from sort of working so hard your whole life and and getting rewarded and getting paid and getting all these acknowledgements to all of a sudden being at home with a baby where there's no answers and you're just struggling because everyone really struggles like it people don't talk about it enough but it's so hard especially in the beginning and especially with your first baby so for me I was sort of stepping back into familiar territory and it it as much as I was desperately missing my daughter I was also a little bit relieved to be like in a space that I knew and 
comfortable in and, you know, and it's much easier working full time than being a mother, like 100% easier. Motherhood is the hardest thing in the world. Can you tell me about how a day would run of you going into the office? You were still breastfeeding, so there's pumping, mm. there's getting out the door. Even trying to look nice at four months postpartum, I actually <laughs> admire. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? I don't think I looked nice. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what I was wearing. I don't, nothing fit. Like, you know, it's hard to find anything that fits at that point. But I don't remember. Like, I do remember it being hard to get out the door. I, um, I, my sister was even in New York as well, so she meet, would meet for coffee before work and get on the train. And so that was a massive source of support just to be with her and hug her and cry mm. on mornings and be like, I can't do this, um, get to work. Yeah, I pumped three times a day. And they have special pumping rooms at Victoria's Secret because there are so many women and so many mothers. So um, they were nice. <laughs> the facilities were great. Um, which, you know, in hindsight, it's like, well, they want you to be at work. That's why it's so good, which isn't mm. a great culture. But the rooms were nice. I had a phone in there. I could plug my laptop in and I would pump and work and pump and work like three times a day. And so I ran to a few meetings, pumped three times, and then I'd be out the door. So it felt sometimes like one step forward, 10 steps back. But I was there. I was showing up. I was trying to do everything. I was trying to work and get back into it. And lucky I had the great team who were already doing the job without me. And so I could kind of just sort of, you know, be there to oversee and approve and then run home to my child, which was, which was a struggle. And I burnt out and I left. And so we can talk about that too. <laughs> that mental load is huge. And that is what I want to get to next. So you do this, I think from memory for about a year before yeah, you right, start yeah. to talk, talk about returning to Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and eventually coming back to Australia? Yeah. So we were, um, we were thinking about moving home to Australia after she was born just because we felt like we'd been in New York nearly six years and just thought maybe um, we wanted her to be, to grow up in Australia. And we, we, we also loved New York and we knew it would be hard to leave. And we thought the longer we stayed, the harder it would be. We lived in a studio apartment with her until she was 18 <laughs> months old. So we had the greatest apartment in the greatest location. We didn't want to move, but it was, it was small. It was tight. So we knew that the next step would be like a Brooklyn brownstone or home. <laughs> and so we sort of considered both ideas, but in the end, we just, we just wanted to be home. We wanted her to be home. I knew at that point that I didn't want to work full time for a while anymore. Like I was mm -hmm. literally burnt out, like depleted, exhausted, not seeing, I didn't see her for, you know, properly for the first year of her life. And that was really hard. And it's still hard to think about now. So I just didn't, I, I love my job and people were like, you know, you are on track for, you know, this incredible kind of career. Um, and the money was amazing and everything was good, except it just didn't sit right with me. It just mm. wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. Um, it also, I think when you have a baby, you just prioritize things differently. Like obviously you've got a child, so they're the priority, but in your mind, like before she was born, work was everything. Like, you know, obviously my relationship was huge as well, but work really mattered in my life. And after she it's was It's such born, a big chunk of every day for five days yeah. a week. It's so, yeah. like, so much of our identity is mm -hmm. tied into that. It is. Yeah. It's really about identity and who you are and what, you know, who you are, what you do is who you are kind of thing. And I just, mm. that didn't sit right with me anymore. And I just thought, no, I don't, I, as much as I love this job and the opportunities are there. And like I kind of said earlier, like I've always been kind of not conditioned, but it's just been in my personality to hustle and get, get sort of get there. And I was get, I was on the leadership team at this point. I was making all the big decisions. I was, you know, really in a great space in my career, but I just thought I don't, if I walked away, how sad would I be? And I thought, I don't think I'd be that sad. I actually would be, mm. I would relish the time with my child who I've 
just not been with. I just miss her and it just doesn't feel right anymore. So it was a pretty, it was a quick decision, but also like an evolving one, like where I just wasn't, you know, neither of us were feeling great about the situation as much as we had, you know, the one, a wonderful nanny and it was all kind of working out. It's just not what we wanted for our life anymore. So James, my husband, James sort of said, well, you can leave work and be be at home with her. And we were privileged enough for him to have enough, you know, be making enough money for me not to work. But um, I didn't want to do that either because so much of my identity, like we sort of talked about, was tied to that role. Mm. So I thought if I left that job, I almost have to leave New York too and start fresh. And so I, yeah, we made that decision and um, moved home when she was about 18 months old via a few months in Europe, which was really needed, much needed family time together. And so before we move on to making your move back to Australia, yeah, there's so much guilt in the leaving your baby to go to work. Did you get any of that reverse guilt of, oh my God, why don't I want my career as much as I used to? Yeah, I don't think it was guilt, but it was um, definitely a question that I asked myself. Mm. Yeah, it 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 almost it was almost like the minute she was born, it was like, what well, nothing else in the world matters anymore. Like this is this matters, this matters, and that does change and it does ebb and flow, and it, you know that sort of feeling does change. But I think you're transitioning through just a massive life stage, a huge rite of passage, becoming a mother, and it's something we don't talk about enough. It's something we don't honour or acknowledge. I think women feel really, really lost in this space, especially the first couple of years of motherhood, because we don't, as a society and culture, acknowledge the shift, which is huge. You know, we have so much reverence for adolescence and we give teenagers space to become the person that they're going to become. But matrescence is exactly is exactly the same sort of process. Like hormonally, we're changing, our identity is changing, our world and relationships are changing. But no one's sitting back and honoring that and telling us it's normal to be feeling all the feelings we're feeling. So I was going through all of that without any understanding of even the word matrescence. I'd never heard it. I think I'd had two children before I'd first came across that word. And I knew that things were shifting for me, my priorities, my identity everything was changing, but I had no kind of language around it. So I didn't, I thought, am I the only one going through this? Am I going crazy? Like what is going on in my head? Um, but I, I also knew deep down, like my gut was telling me what was, what felt right. And so I followed that almost for the, for the first time in my life where it's like, no, you need to take a step back. You need space. You need to work out what is more meaningful for you because I love my job, but it wasn't saving anyone's life. Like it's Victoria's Secret lingerie, like honestly, <laughs> photo shoots, fashion parades, like private jets. It was all amazing, mm. but it didn't, it just didn't sit right with me anymore. It didn't feel like something that I wanted to be doing. And so walking away from it, I didn't feel guilt. I felt like potentially I was, people were telling me I was making a huge mistake because I like, you've, you've worked so hard and now you're just there. You're just right, right at the cusp of like great things. And you're leaving and you're quitting and you're leaving it all behind. But I was like, no, I've learned a lot. Um, it's been right. Like it was the right job for that moment in my life, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel right for me now. And so I didn't really have any, any guilt around. It. I remember people saying to me, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a mum. that's enough. Mm. And there was like a lot of people like, no, it's not enough. Like what else are you going to do? And I think that's a huge question as well for a lot of women who sort of question their role, especially if they are a full-time mother, they, there's no, there's not enough support and acknowledgement for that role and like I said it's the hardest job in the world and if we valued it more we would be okay to be at home with our children because we would know that you know what we're doing and what we're offering and what we're giving our children is 
everything. And if that's our choice, then we should be able to do it and it should be honored. But because there's no respect for any of that, um, I really felt that. I felt like a lot of people saying, but you can't just do that. You, you've got to do something else, like to be valuable. And I was kind of like, no, I feel quiet. I'd worked so hard, I think. And I was mm. so ready for a break that I was very much like, no, I'm very happy with this choice. And I've always liked to work. I love being creative. And I knew that there would be other things that I wanted to sort of seek out, but I was happy also just to take a bit of a break. So I think that was, I'd never done that before in my whole life. So it was really, it was a really nice change. It sounds like you also had the confidence to go for what you wanted, which I'm hearing a lot in terms of you negotiating a little bit extra maternity leave and then deciding, no, this actually just isn't right for me, which I wish every woman had and possessed that quality because it seems to have helped you so much with your path. And just on that shift, so now we're moving to Australia, you're starting a whole new career trajectory and also taking a break to look after your child. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I... um. I knew I wanted to take a break, but I also, like, like I said, I'm a bit of a hustler, like a bit of, like, I want to make things happen. I want to do things. So I'm always thinking in the back of my mind. And I remember James and I talking on that trip in Europe, like, what's next? What will I do next? And it felt exciting. It didn't feel daunting. It felt like, yeah, there's something there that I want to pursue. Um, And I'd had a doula for my daughter's birth and I'd always been a bit of a birth nerd. And after she was born, I was just became more and more obsessed with birth. I had a really good birth with her. The doula was incredible. She changed our whole experience of that sort of um, birth and postpartum and everything, just having that additional support and having someone to navigate through the US maternity system, which honestly is completely messed up. Like I've just come back from supporting my younger sister for her first birth in LA and the system over there is just crazy. Mm-hmm. Just the, the amount of intervention and the just the oh, it's just makes me feel sick even thinking about it. But having having not had our doula, I think our birth could have gone quite differently. And you know, she gave us the gift of a of an empowered, positive experience where we felt in control. I felt like I had autonomy in the space, and that is a huge gift. And I thought that feels like a good thing to be doing. Like I I already love birth. I've always kind of looked for a path where I'm supporting people and helping people. Like I've considered psychology on and off throughout my whole sort of forever. I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been all people tell me I'm a wonderful listener and an incredible support. And I just thought maybe I can put those kind of, those kind of traits to better use and learn about birth work and, and what that looks like. And it was a big thing in the U S then, like a lot of people have doulas. I think most people say, who is your doula? Not like, are you getting a doula? Like who's your doula? Right must have one. And um, in Australia, like we are a little bit behind the US, it was still in its infancy really when I got home. And um, yeah, so I, I made the decision to train as a doula, which was about a year long process and start doing birth work. And it was almost like, I remember being in the training, I went back to New York to train and I remember sitting in that training and feeling like for the first time in my career that I was in the right space with the right people, like everyone was just very aligned and it just felt natural to me. And it Like I felt very lucky to have found something that really resonated. Not that I didn't love my job before. I loved it, Mm. but it was a very different feeling to actually being in a room full of people that actually felt, you know, aligned in a different way. Like I'm not super spiritual, but it was like a spiritual experience of like, this feels right. And I feel like I'm finally finding something that feels right. And then when I started supporting families and being in birth and making an impact and seeing what support can do to a family because it is the most vulnerable time of your life 
where things can go one way or the other. And if, Mm. you know, birth trauma is huge in Australia and worldwide really, but one in three at least in Australia are saying they've got, you know, emotional trauma from birth and what that does to the family and what that does to the community is just you know, huge, the ripple effects of that, that negative experience in that birth space is huge. And, and it's generational as well. It goes down and down and down. And then you think of the flip side of that, if you can support someone to have a positive and empowered birth, then, you know, how wonderful is that? Then you're, you know, watching this family blossom in a supported environment and there could be nothing better. And it just felt like, yeah, I found, found what I want to do, which was exciting. That's such a great story. And it's such a good point. It's almost like, as is commonly said, you're birthing yourself again, you're reinvented when you have a baby and it's such a huge identity shift. So if we're helping women from the birth onwards, it's going to enrich their lives as parents, as workers in every aspect. From that point on, you continue to build your family, but you also build a business. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So when we got home, um, my daughter was about, oh, almost two, I think. And then I became pregnant with our second daughter, Audrey. And um, around that time is when I trained as a doula and I knew I wanted to get into the birth work, but I also found that I wanted to sort of do something more and maybe even potentially start a business or a space similar to ones that I'd seen in New York, like, you know, doing very, very well. So there's a couple of spaces in New York and a couple in LA that I went to and I um, sort of experienced. Um, One of them was Carriage House Birth where we found our doula. And it was just a beautiful, um, cozy space in Brooklyn where they did birth education, they did workshops, they had doulas. And I thought that kind of thing could really work in Melbourne, I think. Mm. Um, So I started seeking out sort of spaces and also working on a um, business plan. And I did it slowly. I'd obviously had Audrey in like the in March. Um, So I spent that whole year just when I could just thinking and meeting women around Melbourne and talking to them and getting ideas and advice about whether or not you know, this would actually work. Um, and then, you know, I worked pretty hard on that business plan and we opened Gather um, when Audrey was about one and a half. So I think it was in 2018. So yeah, during that time, I was just working on that, working with, um, being with Audrey and working on the business. And then, then Gather opened September, 2018 and it opened with workshops. We have um, yoga, we have our doula collective. So now in the beginning, I think our doula collective was like five or six doulas. And now we have almost 40 doulas working throughout Victoria. And I have a ton of people, doulas all over Australia wanting to join. And I just haven't done it yet because I'm not quite sure how to uh, manage that side of things, but it is in the back of my mind to expand the collective because really I work um, with families to find them the right doula, which I think in the beginning can be quite a daunting experience. If you're going in blind with un- unsure about a doula, what they cost, what they do, who the right one is for them. So I really work um, with families to help them find that right doula, um, which is, yeah, it's at the heart of the business and I and I love it. And obviously we've had COVID, so a couple of years of Gather sort of being very slow, which um, which has been good for me because like we talked about earlier, I wrote my first book in 2020. I've just finished my second. So that timing was quite nice having, even though COVID was very, very hard and I was homeschooling a preppy, I also mm-hmm. had a bit of space um, to write the book, which is, which was really, which was really good. Cause I don't think I could have done it while running gather full time. You had your son Freddie in your belly. You had Audrey on your lap and you're yeah. homeschooling Cammie. Yeah. Tell us about how on earth you wrote a book while doing all of that. Yeah. So there was definitely space for um, the book writing without a child on my lap and homeschooling. But it actually, because of COVID, James, you know, pre-COVID, he would be out the door early, come home late. 
COVID happened. He was home full time and we could um, just, I could negotiate more time. So I could write in the mornings and I could write in the evenings and he was home to step in and do all of the things he couldn't do when he was commuting to and from work. So that was a blessing, just having him here and in the space. But um, yeah, the book, the book just came about, you know, it, it is everything I teach people. So a lot of the content, a lot of the information was just in my head already. Um, and I, also I've, not that I had ever planned to write a book like Hardy Grant, who's my publisher, approached me to write this book. But I guess in a the great scenario, that just doesn't happen very often. I and it doesn't happen. It. And I'd supported like, you know, we'd had, I'd supported a family who were connected to the, to the um, team there and they just talked about me and and they, were inter- they said, are you interested in writing something? And and I guess I'd already always had all these notes on my phone. I had stories. I had ideas. Like I guess in my back of my mind, it was something I was probably planning to do at one point or another, but never would have made the space to do it in 2020 had they not pushed me to do it, um, which was really wonderful. But yeah, just finding the time was hard, but I did have, you know, I had months and months to write it. So a lot of it just sort of flowed on the chunks of time and weekends and early mornings that I was able just to get space and get it done. But I don't know how I did it. And I've just finished my second one. I don't know how I've done that either. So the <laughs> I don't cliche know. of mothers doing things very quickly and efficiently is so yeah. true. Yeah. So I think that's quite amazing when you do find an hour. It's amazing what you're able to do, mm-hmm. but I still will not take away from what a big time that would have been and how accomplished you must feel from doing that. Can you tell us a bit about the first book and also sure. the second book? Yeah, sure. So the first book is The Birth Space. Um, and it's a book that covers everything from conception through pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and then into matrescence. Um, it's it's a book that also has storytelling throughout it. I think we can learn so much through our stories. So I reached out to women um, who I know through either I've supported them as their doula or their friends, or they're just women I've connected with online and had their stories throughout it as well. So it's actually a beautiful book that has a lot of it's dense with information but it's not a difficult book to read because it's it's well sort of thought out and thought through in terms of just having the chapters that um you know aren't too full on I think a lot of birth books just you open them and just think oh, it's overwhelming and it's the last thing I want someone to feel when they're pregnant and preparing for their birth or preparing to conceive and mm-hmm. and getting ready for this journey so I really wanted this book to be um to feel like it was for everyone, no matter what birth you were hoping to have. And I that's I truly believe that it's not about how the baby's born, it's about how supported and empowered and positive the experience was. So it's about um every kind of birth. And it's really, it's not, you know, you find birth books on cesarean, we find birth books on physiological birth, but it's not, it goes into that a little bit. But mm. that's just, I don't think it's, it's, there's just so much more to birth than the actual physical process of giving birth and how that happens and healing, which we cover in the book. But the emotional side of things um, doesn't really get talked about or supported unless you have a doula, really. So if you're pregnant and going through pregnancy without a doula, you know, your checkups with midwives and OBs are not usually there's not usually space to talk about the emotional side of things, which is mm. so unless you have a private midwife and you have a home birth kind of situation where there's lots and lots of time and space in that in that kind of situation where you would be. But in the general system, if you don't have your own midwife and if you even if you have an OB, they're not that's not what that's not their job. That's not their specialty. They're not it's going to show about up. the physical, isn't it? I haven't thought yeah. of that. I had a private midwife, which I think with hindsight would have really helped me with that emotional side of things, yeah. but it's not even until you've brought it up that I've even thought that it's all the physical in the systems, in the public systems or the private systems. Yeah. It's all about your body and your physicality. Yeah. No one's talking about how you're feeling. And you've also just made me so aware of picking up other books 
that I must admit overwhelmed me in the lead up to giving birth, but yours was a real calming, nice sort of a coffee table book in a way. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about book two? I'm not sure what you're allowed yeah. to share. Oh, yeah, no, I can talk about it. It's cool. it's called The Motherhood Space, so it is an evolution of the birth space. There is a, There was a lot in the matrescence chapter that I wanted to keep going with with the mm. birth space, but it just had to end at a certain point and it was really mainly about the birth and the postpartum. So The Motherhood Space goes deeper into um, motherhood and it is so interesting because when I started writing it and started planning it, I had a plan that really changed. So I spoke to you know, I have over 30 hours of conversations with like women who are um, mothers, but also experts in their field. So sexologists, psychologists, psychotherapists, relationship experts, um, so many different women where I just spoke to them about their professional experience, but their personal experience as a mother as well. So mm. that initial kind of plan really changed um, as I spoke to more women and got a sense of what the main themes were coming through about their life as mothers, like universally, because these women were all over the world. Um, and how, you know, my experience as a mother is like, you know, I'm a white middle-class woman. I'm so privileged. Like I can't, mm. I can only speak to my one experience or my experience of having three children, but the breadth of motherhood is just huge. So what can I do to really open that up and get so many stories in here and get, you know, women talking about their experiences of motherhood but also I speak to women who have chosen actively not to become a mother I've spoken to women who um were able weren't able to become a mother women mm -hmm. who, who are mothers but they're having one child or having multiple children like you know and how it impacts your relationship your friendships your career and just how motherhood is woven throughout it and a big part of the book is about the patriarchy and the mental load and how we suffer as mothers because culturally and socially we're not valued in our role and so we we are suffering in ways that you know could be if, if culture if culturally we we shifted and had mm. more reverence and respect for this huge role um then we would all thrive and families would thrive but right now we're still you know just on we're still just under the thumb of the patriarch this patriarchal motherhood and it's and it's challenging and it's challenging in ways that we sort of you know we carry a lot of guilt we blame ourselves for things when actually you know it's not our it's not within us it's it's the system and it's the culture and it's everything we're trying to do as mothers but can't because um you know we're stuck and it's and it's really hard it's such and a fascinating so, topic and it is so culturally ingrained even doing this podcast interview with you I've set up at my parents house in case my baby cries I'm not there I've left yeah. him with his dad who is so happy to have yeah. him he has no complaint but I still felt grateful and anxious and guilty about leaving him there. And yeah. that's not even coming from my husband. He is great at sharing the load yeah. with me, yeah. but it's so historically ingrained in us. It is. Yeah, it's it's generational. It's like every, it's everything we've seen. It's everything, like the expectations on mothers are huge mm. and that isn't, there, there are no expectations on men in the same way that there are on women. And so I... I really sort of dive deep into a lot of that in the book. Um, and it is going to be, it's going to be a similar kind of vibe and style to the birth space, which will be amazing because um, it is a beautiful book, but it goes into pretty, some pretty deep areas. So mm. um, yeah, we're editing it at the moment and it's not due for release until the end of next year in September, 2023, I think. So uh, a little bit of time before it comes out, but I'm, I'm really proud of it. I I would say it's been a tough year writing it because um, I don't know about your little one but our children have been sick since like April it's just been the mm. worst year for sickness I think post-COVID and through winter it's been really hard so the time that I thought I was going to have to write it I just didn't have because at least one of them's been home one day a week since you know most for the majority of the year so it's been 
it's been harder and I've had to work a lot on weekends and it's, you know, that's been sort of hard to navigate. And I think what I've kind of learned from the experience, because like I said before, I'm a yes girl and like I hustle and I work hard and I've really worked very, very hard my whole career. And what I've kind of learned this year is that I think I do want to pause a little bit. I want to take on less birth clients next year. I want to just um, focus more on my family because it's been a really, really intense few years writing these two books, having COVID, like all of the things. Yeah, it's sort of taught me to, you know, maybe it's okay to take a step back sometimes and pause and Mm. take a breath and see what's next and be ready for what's next. But um, I don't think we can continually go, 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 go and not for that not to be sort of detrimental to our health and family time. So like I said earlier, I'm in a very privileged position where I can try to take a step back from the birth work for a little while and um, still do it because I can't not because I love it so much. And sometimes Mm. families want to hire me and I say yes when I know that I'm at capacity, but I, I can't not do the work. I love the work. I feel lucky to be doing the work, but I will do a lot less next year, I think. That leads perfectly into me asking about how you carve out some me time or maybe it's telling your future self how they will carve out some me time because you've had such a busy period. Yeah, I find this question really hard because it is hard to find time for myself, but I think it's really, really important. And what I've learned is that it is really important for mothers to prioritise themselves. I think our children's needs are constant And we're never going to find time for ourselves unless we purposely and consciously make time for ourselves. And my kids are never happy when I go out without them. Um, They always want to come to all my, you know, dinners with friends and that kind of thing. That's so cute. Yeah, they're never happy. They just want it. They just want me the whole time. Such Um, a great compliment, but also a little bit annoying. (laughs) Yeah, because I, and I try to explain to them, it's important for me to have space too. It's important for me to prioritize my relationships and my friendships. Um, but I, I haven't always been that way. I, I, you know, in the past would have said, okay, no worries. I'll stay home. I don't want you to be upset. But now I'm like, no, they need to see that I matter. I'm their mother, but I'm also a person who needs time and space. So for me, it kind of looks more like just seeing friends when I can and trying to go out for a walk occasionally on my own. Um, there's not like we are, James and I in like the depths of parenting right now, like now that Freddie's turned two, I feel like we can kind of come up for air a little bit. I feel like the first couple of years are pretty intense and I can sort of see a different life for us coming now that he's a bit bigger and, you know, he might drop his nap soon and that kind of thing, like space will be opened up to us, which would be nice. Um, But yeah, it's been a really intense, what, nine years of parenting. And in that time, there's not always time for me time every week kind of thing. But what I try to tell the families I work with even if it's just their first baby, their first baby's really little, is for the for the both parents, if there are two parents in the family, to both have time um, in the week for themselves and to carve it out and block it out and make sure it's a priority because I feel like, you know, if we're talking just in heterosexual relationships, I feel like men are much better at prioritising their time away from families mm. than women are. So, um, yeah, it's great for them to have their time. They should have their time, but so should we. So you book it in, you make it happen, and you and it becomes a habit. And the family knows about it, whether it's like mum gets Sunday morning, dad has this night or whatever it is, um, and just make it happen because it's so easy just to have it fall by the wayside and say, that's okay, they're sick or they're not, aren't they happy? they're not happy I'm going out so I'll stay home. But, yeah, you can't keep going like that. I've learned, you know, I did that for a long time and 
I'm much happier if I if I can have some time away and some space. It's another type of burnout, just like being in a corporate world. It's the exact yeah. same thing. You need a break. Otherwise, yep. you're going to burn out. I've recently started going back to dance classes and that hour yeah. is unbelievable and it does so much to reset you. So you have three kids. Your husband and yourself are very busy with work, even if you are going to take a pause. How do you and James run the household? Is there anything organisational that you do or any sort of approaches to 50-50 parenting that you think work? Yeah, look, I don't think it's ever going to be 50-50 parenting. I don't even, I don't worry so much about the 50-50. Like I feel mm -hmm. like it's, you know, he works full time. He has a really demanding job and my job's more flexible. So naturally things fall on me, but I am pretty quick to put my foot down and say like, no, this is something that we need to, you need to own or that I need you to do um, in a way that I didn't use. Like it probably took me five years to really start putting my foot down and say, mm. That's not okay because it's not that he's not incredible. He is incredible. He does a lot, but I'm at capacity, he's at capacity, and we still need support and we need more. So we just have to work that out. And I feel like the trouble is with most relationships, like one parent, usually the birth, birthing person, mother, will stay home with baby in the beginning for six months or a year or whatever it is. And in that time, things accumulate, jobs accumulate. It's an invisible load that the partner never really sees. And we can sort of ask or nag or whatever it is to to get help and to have more help. But in the end, it's easier for us to just do it because it's too hard to explain that it needs to get done. And it just goes and goes and goes into this cycle of us just having to continue to do it through years of parenting. And that's not okay. So it's about putting your foot down earlier. And it's not about the partner not being willing. It's about mm. you working together to, to name what has to get done and list it out and say like we need to start I need you to start owning this like I need you to know that this is the children's doctor this is these are the appointments that need to get made mm. you know there are so many like so many small examples that yeah if you just if you talk about one or two it, it feels a bit silly but if you actually understand that like these just uh, you know they pile up and they pile up and it's just constant and it's just constant constantly having this mental load just going around in your head that you know nothing's ever done you know I I have three days a week where Freddie's in care and one of those days I'm usually washing, shopping, cooking, cleaning and it's not a work mm. day when it should be a work day. That's why we have it. But I'm doing all of the household things and I think, you know, how can we how can we get better at this? So, yeah, in the last few years I've been better at sort of naming what needs to get done and asking for support more in different areas um, and it's an ongoing conversation between us. It really it is. I think it's... I think it's a challenge and I think it's a really common challenge in relationships because um, so much of it is invisible and I think you have to really sit down, name it and say this is what I need help with and things have to change. And I think before I sort of thought, you know, he's working full time, I'm not, so I can take on more more of these this load. But actually that's not okay because I'm through the day working full time, I'm just with the children and mm. there's hours outside of that work and there's weekends that you know, things just have to keep going and getting done. So, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> I and don't it have comes back to that mental load, doesn't it? Because the mental yeah. load is 24-7, the thinking yeah. about. I found that partners in a heterosexual relationship, the men are getting really good at doing the things, but the mm. women think about what needs to happen before the doing of the things. Totally. But I think that's the big thing that needs to start to shift and continue to shift. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, really good point. Like I've said to James before, like, you know, James is like, but I, I wash the sheets and I do the meet the teachers and that kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, but I book the meetings with the teachers mm. and I'll take the sheets off the bed because they need to get washed. You know, like 
yeah, you see them on the ground in the laundry, so you throw them in the washing machine, but you would never think to take the sheets off the bed. Like it's a small example, but mm-hmm. it's like there's a million of those examples where you're the one, like, you know, you're sort of, you're the one sort of initiating all of this. And so that is constant. Yeah. I have one more question for you. I've loved listening to your story. I find it so fascinating. And I think what you've done is incredible. What do you think is the biggest advice you could give to someone wanting to start a new business while maybe parenting at the same time? Yeah, I think um, if it's something that you're passionate about and really, really care about, making a priority to carve the time out is really important. If it's something that you um, have the time for, then you just, you know, go easy on it. But if it's something that you really want to do and and actually prioritise, you need to sort of make space for it in your family and you need to push for it and you need to continue to push for it. I feel like it's almost like a daily kind of like conscious effort to do something that really matters to you. So um, if you're happy in your corporate career and you just want to keep going in that, you should keep going in that. But if you feel like there is something else that you want to do or make space for, then you matter and it matters. So do it. And I think, you know, having a supportive partner really, really helps as well. So getting them on board and, and explaining the reasons why you want to do it. I could never have done it without James's support. He He said to me early on, I said, this is not financially a good decision and this is not, <laughs> um, and this is not necessarily the right decision for our family but he said yeah but it's a good thing and you should do it I think you'd be really good at it so without his support it never would have happened so you really need to sort of you know explain why it matters to you and if it does matter to you like anything in life you pursue it so make it happen Gabrielle this has been an amazing conversation I think a lot of people are going to take a lot out of this before we say goodbye where can we find you online so you can find me at gatherwomenspace.com and on Instagram or at gatherwomenspace. And I have a personal website where you can book doula support as well. And it's gabriellenancaro.com. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. In acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, each week I'll be doing a shout-out to an Indigenous business or charity doing great things. This week it's Common Ground, a First Nations not-for-profit working to shape a society that centres First Nations people by amplifying knowledge, cultures and stories. I love their yearly First Nations Bedtime Stories project, which brings dreaming stories as old as time into homes and classrooms around Australia. You can check it out online. That's all for today. See you next time.